to Subject ACT on 2XFM 98.3, your people-powered radio. I'm Bindi Dobbin and thanks for listening. This week we continue our series with Part 2 on Women, Gender Equality, the Gender Gap and the 30% Club for the Australian Chapter. My guest is Nicola Wakefield-Evans, who is chair of the 30% Club. Nicola is a lawyer of long standing and serves as a non-executive director on several ASX-listed boards. I started by asking Nicola about the 30% Club. Where did the 30% Club originate? So it originated in the UK in 2010. It was established by Dame Helena Morrissey with the aim of achieving a minimum of 30% female representation on United Kingdom FTSE 100 boards and it's a well it's now a global campaign led by chairs and CEOs taking action to increase gender diversity at board and senior management levels. How do you think the chapters work around the world and where is everybody heading? There have been varying results and what I'm delighted to say is that Australia is leading the pack amongst um, the membership companies of 30, the countries of the 30% plot. Um, having reached uh, 30% of the ASX 200, so we reached our goal at the end of 2019, 12 months ago, and we're now, uh, we've now reached the goal of um, the, A- the ASX 300. And we're way ahead of most other countries within the 30% club universe. You've got countries like Japan, which have notoriously low levels of female representation in any form of leadership, particularly in companies. You've got countries like Malaysia and Hong Kong, Even countries like the United States have not managed to shift much past about 23%. The United Kingdom has done really well, um, and you would expect that having the 30% club being launched there in 2010. MENA, as we spoke about, women in leadership is a huge issue across Middle Eastern countries, but a lot of really uh, interesting work's being done to shift the dial in the Middle East. And then we've got an increasing number of countries in South America Again, where women women in leadership have, have had interesting uh, histories. We're not all in the, at the same place. So you've got countries where the representation is as low as 8% to Australia, where we're hopefully heading towards 35% now. See, that is quite some movement. And where do you see it heading in Australia? What's the pipeline look like? Pipeline's interesting. One of the keys, we know that chairs and nomination committees have large listed companies generally like to appoint increasingly diverse boards but they still want candidates who've had significant executive experience and that's where the issue between the genders arises because we know that women have the percentage of women in in top executive roles within our companies is still um, amazingly low. Chief executive women produce a census, an ASX 200 census each year. It's published in October. And the, the numbers of women in senior leadership roles in our ASX 200 has hardly shifted in five years. So we know that there's something wrong with the pipeline. Women who have been appointed, and, and what's really pleasing is that we've moved from 9% of women on boards in 2009 in this country to over 30% today in the ASX 200. So that's a, that's a significant shift, a little over um, 10 years. My concern is that we have all of the women who have the credentials to be appointed to the big ASX listed boards. The pleasing thing that's happened though is when we launched the 30% club in 2015, We've had a couple of knock-on effects. So the biggest knock-on effect we've had is with government boards. Every single state government and the federal government now have 
policies to increase the number of women on their government boards. Most of our governments now are well over 30% and a large number of them are well over 40% women on government boards. So we've had this enormous shift in five years of the government appointing women on government boards and that has a trickle-on effect because you're increasing the pool of women who have board experience, you're increasing the diversity of women who, with their diversity of experience. And the other thing that's happened is a lot of private, um, large private organisations have also increased the number of women on their board. So you think of companies like Bupa Australia, which is a large company in its own right. Um, it's not listed, it's a subsidiary of a UK company, but the Australian board has been 50% women for some time. So there's been a there's been a really good triple on effect with the focus on increasing women on boards. However, a couple of things. We don't have enough women in executive roles and board appointments, particularly to large companies, tend not to happen until you, you've had significant executive experience. So my advice always to women is make sure you have that um, executive experience if you can make sure it's got some financial component, you have to be financially literate to be on a board. I think that capability is becoming much more required than, say, um, 10 years ago. And so for women in their 30s and 40s, my advice always is keep in your executive career. You will It, it will be harder to get board appointments if you haven't had that significant experience on the executive side. Why are so many women in human resources and marketing and communications, how do we get more women into the harder skills and actually at the table? I think it's complicated, Shane. One of the reasons is that more women graduate in those um, disciplines. So there are more women in functional roles within organisations than in the P- than have P&L responsibility. So human resources, communications, marketing, legal and company secretaries. Um, and, and one of the reasons is they graduate in higher numbers in the degrees that are applicable to those types of jobs. And they, are, they also come out of professions or industries that have been really supportive of women. The legal profession is a good example. You know, I think the legal profession have done a great job. There's still more work to do, but have done a great job in supporting women. And the reason for that is that women started graduating at 50% and more out of law schools in the 1980s. So there have been more women lawyers. In, and it's the same in um, if, if you look at women who take business degrees, they tend to do the marketing and communication side of business degrees rather than focus on accounting and economics. And so there's there's that issue. The second issue is when they join organisations, a lot of women are sort of pushed into the functional roles. They don't get the same opportunities as men do, I think, for advancement on the PL side. And that's where organisations have a role. We need to have organisations really critically look at their whole life cycle of people management from how they recruit women, how they support and promote women, what that looks like, and more importantly, what sponsorship they they provide internally. I think sponsorship is as important as mentorship. They're two different things. You need to have really senior sponsors to be able to advance in big organisations. And until all those things change, getting more women to do degrees that will give them the opportunity to have P&L responsibility and for organisations to change the way they look at women and women's careers 
then I hopefully will start to see a change. So some of them are now within these major companies and aren't necessarily aware of the 30% Club or other initiatives, and yet their own companies are supposedly uh, supporting women to step up. So how do you gain that awareness? I'm really quite shocked at how many people weren't aware of the 30% Club and perhaps getting the wrong idea of, of how these particular organisations operate. And I also wondered whether there's an opportunity to have an internship or a mentorship, but somewhere for this very highly qualified next group of women that are coming up 40 and already have significant executive experience to intern on a board. How do you get them there? Because there's such a big jump between people like yourself who um, it's a career and you're so experienced and there are many people that hold these wonderful positions, but how do we encourage the next generation? So I, th- I think it has, it's got to be a multifaceted approach. So both, I think organisations need to make sure that they've got the correct processes to recruit, to to promote and to provide sponsorship and mentorship to the women within their organisation. If I can just take one of your points, um, one of the exciting aspects of being part of a global initiative, which is what the 30% Club is, is the ability to harness the global reach of a number of significant institutions. And that's something we're working on now. So we're looking right across the members of each chapter to see which members we all share. The big four accounting firms are obviously a group, the big consulting firms, and also um, a large number of the big investors across listed stocks globally. And so what we're trying to do is make is, is persuade them to join us globally and then to have both an external and an internal communications campaign to raise that awareness that you speak of. So that's that's the first thing. And that's very, very exciting to have to have that. So that's that's an initiative that's been started this year by having a global advisory board, um, which I sit on. The second thing is um, the harder the harder issue is how do we promote women and how do we provide the opportunity to see what a, an executive career looks like and to, pl- and to map out what your career looks like. I always say to women, the number one responsibility for a career is, is you. So women have to actually take responsibility for their careers and not wait for things to happen or to be noticed or to be mentored. The second thing is um, there are a lot of really good programs available in Australia to get women into the next phase to look at possibility you know the possibility of being appointed to boards so you've got the um, AICD the Australian Institute of Company Directors runs its flagship ASX um, chairman mentoring program that's a biannual program where we match emerging women with experienced chairs and they go through a very structured mentoring process that's been really successful it's been run since about 2010 and a number of women who've participated in, in that program have now been appointed to significant boards so that's one chief executive women provide scholarships for women to do mbas to allow them to take the next step in their executive career so that's very much focused on the executive side but there are those programs and i encourage women who are interested to look at the chief executive women website because some of those scholarships are absolutely fantastic and then you've got other initiatives lots of organizations are oh and sorry chief executive women also does a very successful women in leadership program and that's targeted to organizations nominating women to do a course which is very structured to enable them to continue on their leadership journey within an organization and that and and we call that sort of stepping up providing a framework a cohort and a structure 
for women to seize the opportunities within their own organisations and to be able to, to understand how to ask the questions, who to talk to, and most importantly, to get sponsorship of senior executives within their organisations who can provide that guide path for their careers. That sounds wonderful, and I, and I think that's fantastic about having 30% as a global organisation so that there's some objectives that, that hold all of those groups to, to account as well. It really offers such promise. When you talk about the education side of things, I remember seeing that the London Business school had MBAs. Everybody had MBAs that were offered for free for for women to help, I guess, educate themselves a little bit further to step up. But they weren't always taken up. And and I think there was also executive training and leadership and things like that. Do you think it's absolutely necessary to have undergraduate, postgraduate skills? Or can you come at this from just being a very experienced, not just a CEO, but experienced executive, do you think? No, you don't don't need to have postgraduate graduate skills but you do need to have that breadth of and depth of experience in my view in your executive career and that it, d- it depends on you know the organizations the type of sector you're in type of job you have but there's no doubt that increasingly having that executive experience is an important capability that boards look at when they're appointing directors so you need to be able to to demonstrate that I think particularly if you want to be, if your goal is to be a director of a large list. Uh, and the reason why that executive experience is so important is that it allows you to understand organisations, it allows you to understand how they operate internally, it, allow, it enables you to understand how PML work, having that financial acumen and a commercial acumen, which is really, really important. We've got a government department in Wajia who collects the statistics. So what we do is we all work together in a coalition. 30% Club uh, works under the framework of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. I think one of the key reasons why Australia has been successful in moving the dial here is that we have been obsessed with statistics and we measure Mm. and we report. And so we report every quarter on um, how the statistics are going. That's done through the AICD. And that's had a really important impact because it means that the conversation about reaching 30%, we've managed to keep in front of everybody's minds um, since we launched in 2015. And that measurement is actually going to be t- become um, part of the integral way that 30% works globally. So all of the other chapters are going to copy what we've done in Australia with that obsession with the statistics. The reason we've been focused on 30% is that it was an achievable goal because we started off with a very low base and we felt that if we had an achievable goal we measured our performance against that goal, there's a greater chance of reaching the goal. And then our big issue, I think, over the short term is whether we move the goal to 40%. And that's a conversation we're having, obviously, with the Global 30% Club because, A, we've then got a branding issue. That's a conversation that we're starting to have and what does that look like? And maybe Australia is one of the first countries who will move to 40% once we can, we can shift the dial even further. Our goal is to have every company in the ASX 200, uh, sorry, in the All Ordinaries, reach 30% at some point. So that's a discussion that we have to have. And then your point about um, working with other groups, we do have a lot of groups. So the way that we're organised, we have a steering committee, but then we have have a lot of working groups that work in the 30% club universe. So we've got education, we've got all the executive search firms. They've done a fantastic job and they've they've really worked 
within their global organisations but also under Australian conditions so that when they get jobs for board appointments but also executive appointments, they are trying to persuade their clients to make sure that they're getting balanced lists of um, candidates. We've got the investor group. I, I, I've often seen our investor group in Australia as being the most successful because they've had the ability to shine the light on the listed companies mm-hmm and using their clout to make sure that the listed companies are listening to them about diversity. And by using their clout, I mean they've started voting against direct denominations where, the, where they feel that the boards aren't diverse enough. So that's, that's really using um, their ability to change the dial. We've also got um, a professional services committee. We also work with all of the large investment banks and the private equity houses. And the reason they're important is that they're often the sponsors of companies that are listing through an IPO. And the, the statistics for the IPO boards are nothing short of shocking. But we are getting movement and we've got support from the investment banks to work with their clients to make sure that when companies are being brought to the listing process that their boards are more diverse than, than they normally are. So there's a lot of you know organisations and I call working in this coalition to move the dial in Australia. I understood from uh, Heather McGregor way back that 30% was, t- was called 30% because that was the percentage where minorities got a voice. And I thought that's a really great statement. So I'm not sure what would happen if you went to 40%, what the significance, other than obviously a, an increase in um, more women on boards, etc. How do you keep up the momentum for going forward from here? So I think there are a couple of things. One is just to get more and more people involved. Next year, uh, we hope to announce a coalition to really work on the executive pipeline that we talked about. Really important that we get more women into senior executive roles in organisations. Both the other um, goals we have are to work on those companies in the ASX 300 that haven't reached 30% or only have one female director. So there's still quite a large group of companies. There's also one company in the ASX 200 that does not have any women on their board. We're definitely going to work with them to try and see that we can change that. The FTSE 100, for example, um, there's no company in the FTSE 100 in the UK that doesn't have at least one female director. So I'm quite competitive. I'd like Australia to be in a in a similar position. We're also doing a lot of research. So we're supporting a piece of research by the University of Queensland and the ARCD, which will be released next year to look at what drove the success of the campaign to 30% and what knowledge we can use then to shift the dial to get to get everybody to 30% and to increase the community and um, the, the understanding of what, what we actually do and why it's so important. Thank you very much, Nicola, for your time. And I apologise for some of our technical issues. It really sounds fantastic. From 2015 to 2020, that's a lot of, of progress. So fingers crossed that you can keep that up going forward. Thank you very much. That was Nicola Wakefield-Evans from the 30% Club Australia giving us an update on women on ASX-listed boards and also talking about what the pipeline looks like for the future. If you've just joined us, this is Subject ACT on People Powered Radio 2XXFM 98.3.
Backing up the importance of advocacy and sponsorship and networking for women is my next guest, Nicole Duncan, who is a lawyer and has been with South 32 for six years, previously with BHP for 15 years. Nicole has held various roles as general counsel, VP commercial, and now as chief people and legal officer. Welcome, Nicole, and thank you. Thank you, Shane, for having me. What made you choose to be a lawyer? Really an interest in business. So I explored a number of avenues during my time at university and by the end of that period had decided that I really enjoyed business. I think primarily because I grew up in a family where my father's an economist and so a lot of dinnertime conversation was around how economies develop and the role that business plays in that. And it struck me that the law was a good framework through which to understand business. So where did you start your career post-law? Or I guess you articled it at various groups. Where did you start your career? So as you say, yes, started with a law firm, which is I think where most law graduates go. Uh, But then quickly determined that I really enjoyed being part of a company as opposed to advising a company. And so moved to in-house roles uh, to primarily be part of the work from go to finish. And what really interested me was being part of the work when a challenge or an unexpected problem was identified and being part of the team that worked through that problem. That's what I really enjoyed. But I've never been someone that's had a, a set career path or a set career goal, I've always determined my uh, career moves based on the drive to have really interesting work, but primarily to work with really good people. And looking at your CV and your background, it's really been a terrific career so far. Thank you. You were in BHP for 15 years in various roles. How did you secure that role? And that's a long time for a young person to stay in a role. Yes, but I've heard it's said often that when you work with a very large multinational company, it's like having a completely different job each time you move. So while it was 15 years, it was very, very different jobs uh, throughout that time. And that's one of the beauties of working with a large global company that you get to move through different businesses, but also different locations uh, and with people with different skills. So I started off as a lawyer. I then moved through different roles in the legal area, but then I moved into commercial role and moved into technology within that commercial role and then moved into company secretary. So very, very different jobs within the same large organisation. How long have you been with uh, South 32 and what, what's your current role? South 32 was created almost six years ago now. Uh, it was created through a demerger from BHP. So I moved into South 32 as part of the team to set up the new company. And my current role is Chief Legal Officer and Company Secretary. I have just finished a time as also serving as the Chief People Officer for South 32. So again, I've been able to have a number of different roles uh, with the same company. Have you had a senior sponsor in the company? And I think 
sometimes you hear of this within multinationals, but has somebody supported your move into other areas to progress your career, that, you, that making choices or helping you make choices that you might not have made on your own? Absolutely. Early in my career, I was a lawyer within uh, BHP's Melbourne office and there was a restructure occurring. Decisions were being made about which lawyers could go into which leadership roles in the global locations. And I'm told that my name was put forward for a promotion to the team based out of The Hague in the Netherlands. And there was a comment made that I wouldn't be interested in the role because I had just announced that I was pregnant with our third child. So the conversation appeared to be going down the line of, you know, Nicole's got enough on her plate, she won't be interested. Um, She's just about to have a third baby. It was because there were people in the room who knew me and knew, you know, the right thing to do in that type of situation. They spoke up and said, that's really a decision for Nicole to make, not one for us to make. I think people in the room recognised that as a fair point. And so it was put to me, would I be interested? And it was then that my husband and I made the decision that yes, you know, we would move to the Hay and we would change uh, the way our family worked such that he would become the primary carer and I'd become the primary worker. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience for us, but a very real example mm. of the key work that sponsors can do behind the scenes, you know, in very important conversations. There's no doubt. And I think it's really important for leaders in companies to recognize that as a critical role that they play. And they have to be deliberate about it and spend time thinking about it. And at the right time, have the courage to step forward and to advocate for someone. And did that help you acquire the skills that you require for senior management? And and do you think that's important? How do you get these skills? I think that it's primarily through uh, working the ro- in the roles themselves. So, you know, I've acquired my skills through my roles and particularly through the challenges that I face in those roles and frankly, never tiring of learning new things. I also participated in leadership programs that they were really good at critical times in my career because I was given the time and also the the scope for self-reflection. And that's a real gift to a, you know, a busy person because these were times when I had young children, my husband also working. So there wasn't a lot of spare time. So the ability to step back and to reflect was just absolutely what is needed in addition to facing the day-to-day challenges of the job. Now, you mentioned your family. You've lived offshore on several occasions, not just with your wonderful family, your parents and siblings, but also with your own family and your husband has a career. How do you manage to keep all of those balls in the air and successfully um, keep the family together and happy? I've had really good role models, as you point out, Shane. Uh, My parents really work as a partnership and so that's the frame that my husband and I have taken into our married life really something that needs to be discussed constantly. Uh, The balance just changes all the time. And so you just need to keep recalibrating. And it just then requires really good lines of communication, open 
open and honest communication about how those dynamics are playing out. But as our children mature, including them in our decision making, and that's changing the dynamic for us as well. And do you think that you'll uh, go offshore again? I think in the longer term, we absolutely will do that. I say that because our time outside of Australia was really precious for my family. Um, We bonded as a a family unit and it was just the opportunity to recreate yourself in a sense. So this is especially key, I think, for my husband, who when we made our first move to The Hague, he was able to deliberately decide to step away from work and to be at home with our young children. And because we were going into an environment where no one knew him and no one had any expectations of him or preconceived notions, he could really recreate himself as the stay-at-home dad. But we're now getting to the point where we've committed to Perth for the next period because our children are reaching high school age. We can choose to stay in Perth and and it's a wonderful city to be in. Well, we won't let you out anywhere at the moment. I think the drawbridge is is still up. (laughs) Do you have any advice uh, for young professional executive women and indeed men? I think nothing beats doing your current job well, so never lose sight of that. I think it's really important to take the time to network so that you're on people's radars, put effort into uh, remaining on their radars so that they can then advocate for you in whatever circumstances you know, may unfold. Thank you very, very much, Nicole Duncan. Appreciate it, Shane. It's been lovely to talk with you.